Welcome to the Freshman Foundation Podcast, helping you make the jump from high school athletics to the collegiate level and beyond with your host, Michael Huber. Hey, everyone, you're listening to the Freshman Foundation Podcast, a podcast specifically about the transition from high school to college athletics. My guest on this episode is Daryl Stinson. Daryl is an entrepreneur, pastor, speaker, and most importantly, a suicide survivor. Daryl was a defensive end at Central Michigan University, home of the Chippewas, from 2008 to 2011. Daryl's career was ended by a severe back injury that ultimately led to him trying to take his own life. From that experience, Daryl set out on a path of self-discovery that resulted in him finding his purpose, helping others, specifically athletes and entrepreneurs, change the world by finding their own highest purpose and building thriving careers and businesses. Daryl is also the author of Who Am I After Sports? An Athlete's Roadmap to Discover New Purpose and Live Fulfilled. Please welcome Daryl to the podcast. Daryl, how are you, man? Great to have you. I'm doing amazing. How are you? I am doing really, really well, man. So uh, tell uh, everybody who's listening who doesn't know who Daryl Stinson is, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm originally from Jackson, Michigan. Do you know where that's at? I sure do. About 20 minutes, uh, probably 20 minutes or half hour south of East Lansing. That's right, man. And so I, I, that's where I grew up. Um, Tony Dungy's from there. So uh, I played in Tony Dungy Stadium in high school. Uh, it would have been his middle school, but it was my high school, Jackson Vikings. And uh, man, I've I always been a kid that excelled athletically. Uh, I think I started slow. And because I was so tall so soon that my athleticism was not caught up with my height. <laughs> so I was super tall and, you know, everyone's like, oh, this guy's going to be good. And then I was like clumsy. But probably around the seventh grade is when I just my athleticism just caught up with my height and it started to get dangerous. I dunked for the first time, started building confidence. And then uh, from there, just just got better and better and better. Uh, I got preseason ranked for Mr. Basketball, one spot behind Draymond Green, and uh, started to look at colleges. And so uh, that was kind of like the the fast track to, you know, me getting a Division One football scholarship to play at Central Michigan University. Yeah, so it sounds like you knew pretty early on that athletics was something that was going to be a part of, a big part of your future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my dad's an athlete. Like, my family is full of athletes. And, you know, it's kind of a generational thing. You know, I have an aunt who qualified for the Olympics. She ended up going because she had some drug issues. But she certainly still has records um, in the nation and in our state. Uh, my dad was an elite athlete. He would have went pro if he wouldn't have blew out his knee playing basketball. My cousin uh, went full-ride scholarship. I mean, we've got tons of athletes in our in our family. So, you know, you kind of have that option to play sports if that's what you want to do. And for me, it was definitely my desire. It was the way that I was going to be rich, famous, successful, get, I, I always say buy my, I was going to buy my mom a house and my dad a car. And then people were like, well, what did your dad do wrong to, <laughs> do wrong to you? And I was like, I don't know. It was just in my mind. I just kept telling myself that that's what I was going to do for them. And, and so, yeah, athletics definitely ran in the family. And so, so it was pretty common that, hey, man, this kid's going to play at the next level. So at what point did you start to get, like, recruitment interest? 
Man, very early on. Some people knew my dad, so they were already looking, like, where's the Stinson boy at? Because uh, my dad had me when he was a uh, freshman in college. And so, you know, he would bring me to football games. I'd be sitting on the field, you know, run, play, catch type stuff. And so they were just always waiting to see a kid grow up and see how good he was going to be. Plus, my dad had, you know, a lot of friends and connections in the athletics industry. So, you know, some of them played pro, some of them are coaches. And so they were following my journey. My dad would post pictures and videos. So I feel like I was always on a lot of people's radar. Uh, but, you know, I wasn't. I didn't go to like camps. I did play AAU basketball, which helped me get a lot of visibility in the basketball. I think my biggest challenge was that I was really undecided on whether I wanted to play basketball or football in college because I, my, my first love and my, my, my favorite sport is by far basketball. But, you know, everyone's like, you know, six foot five is kind of average <laughs> when it comes to basketball, but it's, it's, it's way above average when you talk about, uh, playing football. And then my speed was just unheard of to be that tall and that fast. So um, I, that's why I, I leaned towards football. So I actually went to Central Michigan to play both. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, but when I got there, they thought they were going to redshirt me my freshman year until I like almost got a sack on Dan LaFever, who's NFL quarterback. And they were like, yeah, so we're using him on pass rush packages. So about that basketball thing, just forget that, you know. And, you know, kind of per our, our topic of just, you know, these these athlete transitions, one of the things I wish that I would have done is made the decision for myself and not and not made it about what everybody else's opinion was. You know, I, I look back on it and I think like, OK, even if I would have been a professional NFL athlete, a pro bowler, done all these amazing things, I, I would have rather tried at basketball and failed than than then succeeded at something that wasn't my first love. Yeah. You know, and because to me, I could have learned football really quickly. And so I wish I would have done that and I didn't. And I think there's a lot of pressure on people, especially when you're good young, like I was, where they're like, you know, my coach has always said it. It was not a matter of if you're going to play at the next level. It's just a matter of when. And so for me, it was like, I've, I should have chose what I wanted versus other people telling me what to do. And, and, and not that you don't listen to other people, Michael, you know this, mm -hmm. but it's just being wise and mature enough to be like, hey, I'll take the feedback, I'll process it myself, and then I'll make my decision based upon what my heart wants. Not because of I like the colors, not because I think this is cool and my friends are going to this school, but literally just because this is what my heart is saying yes to. And I think that's okay. And I think we should allow our, our students to, to have all the information, give them advice, make them aware of the consequences of their decision, but then like give them the freedom to choose. And yeah. there's a lot of parents who are trying to vicariously live through their children. And my dad was no different. So let me pause there. <laughs> but I mean, you said a lot there and it's true, right? In, in my role, working with young people who want to, most of them that want to get to the next level, one of the big thing that, things that comes up is picking a college that fits them, right? And not just as an athlete, but from a social perspective, from an academic perspective, and a lot of times kids now, and not that this is, wasn't true before, get caught up in the name on the jersey, you know, on social media. Where am I going? Am I going to a big name college versus picking the school that works for them? Because chances are most kids are not going on to play professionally. They're going on to take a job. And are they picking the college that makes sense for them long term? Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, and, and, and there's even another side to that coin. I agree 100 uh, percent with what you're saying. I would also add to that that, yeah, the the other side of that is true, too, whereas, you know, maybe there is an academic school that's better, um, but the you want to go to a, a championship culture team, mm-hmm. you know, and and so make that decision, too. And, and I get it. Like sometimes. You know, when you don't have options, that's one thing. You know, you kind of got to take the best offer on the table. (laughs) But for a person like me and many other athletes who have choices and options or, or, you know, you know, think through some of these things and allow them to choose. Because to me, again, looking back on it, if I would have chose, you know, my degree program, uh, granted, I had a lot of choices that had great academics and athletics. So I didn't have to, you know, choose one at the expense of the other. But but if I did and there was a little lesser degree program, like it wasn't as established or ranked as the degree program, the business program that I chose from CMU, mm-hmm. then I would have chose the one that's going to win me a championship for sports, uh, for basketball, you know? And and so, I mean, that's just, that's just the things that we got to think through. So it's not a black and white um, scenario. It's different for every person. And we just got to take it on a case by case scenario. That's why I love that you have this podcast because it gives people stuff to think about that maybe they, they, they're not thinking about when they're in the heat of the moment. And then it's, it's, you know, I always say, you know, people, people say when they're older and wiser, oh man, you young whippersnappers, you don't know what it's like to walk a mile in my shoe. And I go, you're right. And I don't want to either. I'd rather learn from the mile that you walked than to make the same mistakes. And so that's why I love what you're doing here with this podcast. Yeah. So can you talk about your experience in making that choice? I mean, what I know playing both sports was really important to you, but like what were some of your options and sort of what was the ultimately, you know, the factor or factors that made you choose Central? Yeah, so I think my top three was Butler University. They they had... Um, uh, it was Iowa, Iowa that was recruiting me, their head coach. But then he got the the basketball position at Butler. And so he was extending that invitation for me to have a scholarship there. Uh, I didn't go funny, funny story. <laughs> they ended up going to the final, like six, sweet 16, I think two years in a row, I think final four once at least. That was the year that I could have played for him. So when they were in the final four, my dad literally texted me and say, how do you feel about your decision? <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious. But um, uh, so it was Butler, Michigan State, or uh, Central Michigan. And I, and I guess Eastern, technically. I So I actually committed to Eastern because uh, they were going to let me play um, both sports, and they gave me all these perks. And uh, I switched on signing day to Central Michigan University. So my coaches found out because they um, are a couple of news channels uh, live broadcasting because it was a big deal because they had two Division One athletes coming from our high school going to Eastern. So they were doing this big story. And I put on my central hat. <laughs> the Eastern coach calls me. He's pissed. He's like, Stinson, what? What are you doing? What? And I was just like, man, I don't know. My gut just said to go to central. <laughs> and I made the right choice because we stomped them both like all every time we played them. So, you know, those were my, those were the main decisions. I mean, I had a lot of other offers and stuff, but, you know, kind of the, the, the best was uh, I could have went to Butler full ride scholarship, play basketball, went to Michigan state on a gray shirt. Okay. Went to central Michigan on a full ride to play both or Eastern on full ride to play both. And I chose CMU obviously 
biggest regret is that I wanted to choose Michigan State. Um, but I say regret, but everything worked out. Had an amazing experience. You know, won a MAC championship at CMU. Played with some great athletes. A number one draft pick, Antonio Brown. We beat Michigan State in football one year. <laughs> they stomped us the other year. So I had, I had a great experience. Great degree program. Met my wife. So, you know, I'm not, I don't say regret in that sense that like, I wish I would have chose differently. I say regret in terms of like not being confident enough in myself and my maturity level to make a choice that was more in alignment with what I wanted. Yeah. But I mean, I think as, as adults now, we, we both know that there are consequences to our actions. And when you're 18 years old, yeah, you make, a, you make a lot of bad decisions that you learn from and you move on. There's, you know, to, to look back and be able to have learned from that, you know, it puts you where you are today. You know, there's a reason why you did what you did. Absolutely. Let me just say this, Mark, too, because the gray shirt thing is kind of, you know, hard to decide from some people. I, I will say this. One of the benefits of me going to CMU and not choosing a gray shirt that I that I do give myself credit for was that I was extremely afraid of the decisions that I would make if I had that much time out of school. You know, and granted, I could have started in the fall, but we would have to pay for it ourselves, which we weren't going to do. And so um, I don't even know if we could have if we wanted to. <laughs> but but I'm, I look back and I know a couple of people who gray shirted because they were waiting to get in that next scholarship pool. And they ended up flaking because they, you know, jerked off during the summer and and made some poor decision and was hanging around the wrong people and then lost their opportunity to play at the next level. And so some of the people I was hanging around in high school, that could have easily happened to me. And so I'm like glad that I didn't hang around. Like I literally had like a weekend was my summer when I graduated. Like I graduated and then the next week I was in classes and at training camp. And so, you know, the fact that that just put me right in a, 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 a process where I could succeed and be held accountable was like really wise. So that, so I do take that into consideration. How could you not, right? The financial considerations are just real, right? It's real yeah. life. And to have structure, right? To have a, a situation to walk into where the structure is there for you, where you can step in and start to do the work and have people holding you accountable and responsible. Yeah. There's a lot of value in that, right? So that matters. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you when you made it to Mount Pleasant, right? Which is where central Michigan is. Um, We're getting our Michigan geography lesson here. (laughs) What were some of the challenges you faced as a freshman? I wouldn't have said it then. I'll say now, man, I had, I had way too big of a head. I I had a huge ego and um, I was extremely prideful. Mm -hmm. Um, I wish I would have came in with more humility. I literally, uh, I didn't study other players because my mindset was like, I'm the, I'm going to be the best. They're going to study me. And it's the dumbest thing. <laughs> it sounds good and all, oh, you know, competitive. It was the dumbest thing in the world that I could have done. Uh, that was number one. Um, and so that freshman year I walked in, I mean, you can ask some of my teammates. I had on shades, like I, I got this strut. And then there's this really epic scene. I don't get to tell this story much, but this is, this truly happened. Right. So we come in, it's the, the week that we come in is one of the hardest training weeks uh, for the off season. They literally call it crucible week. 
So we come in and, it, and it's crucible because it's like their their job is to crucify you. <laughs> like that's how hard it is. So the first workout, they've got it um, to where the freshman d- does like, you know, half the reps and like just enough to make them sweat and make them hurt, but not as much as the upperclassmen did. When we got to conditioning, they were supposed to do like 2,510 yard sprints and they were going to let the freshman class do like 10, you know. So we get done with our 10 and this is after the workout, by the way. So everyone's dead and we're dying and they go, all right, freshmen, come on in, you know, go talk to the coach position coaches. And then I'm sitting there like, no, I'm not about to, I'm not about to stop. So it's like a scene out of a movie. So I'm looking, there's like four of the five people like, is this guy serious? I'm like, no, like I'm going to run with my team. You know, and then the 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 upperclassmen are looking like he ain't gonna make it. You know, <laughs> like he ain't gonna be dead in five more gassers. And so we stayed in, uh, probably about four or five of us freshmen, and ran the rest of the sprints with the upperclassmen. Well, watch this. So the upperclassmen are looking at us, and they're like, "Oh no, we can't let this happen. Like, we're not gonna let some freshmen run the same amount of condition that we do. So now we're gonna do more." We ended up doing fifty-one, a hundred and ten-yard gassers. Yeah. Sounds disgusting. Oh my God. It, it was crazy. <laughs> and the coaches were like, it was like ecstasy. Man. <laughs> like they, they were so happy. They were like, yes. Cause every coach wants their, their players to work this hard. And so, you know, that's the mentality I came into college with was like, yo, mm-hmm. I'm playing. I'm an athlete. I'm just as talented as the next guy, you know? And, you know, I, I could do it in sprints, but my leg strength didn't prove it. So then I got smacked around in practice. So I was, and my coach called me the bus guy. He said they traveled me initially because I look good coming off the bus. But then I get pushed around. <laughs> so, man, that was my freshman year. It was a lot of big head. It was me trying to prove myself. It was, you know, adjusting to the class schedule. I did take um, like six credits over the course of the summer. It was a great decision. Uh, some um, first-year experience classes. I highly recommend that to all athletes because it, it, it sets you up for success. Um, every college has their version of like the first-year class. Ours was called FYE 101, and that gave us everything that we need to, to succeed academically in school throughout our four years or five years, depending on however long it takes you to graduate. And so that, that was, I had a great a really great start. Got like a 3.96 GPA that first season. And uh, we won't talk about what happened to the GPA after that. <laughs> what happened to the GPA after that? <laughs> Let's just say uh, what, what goes up goes down. <laughs> but, but no, but in all seriousness though, like what, what were, the, were the, what were the reasons for that? Did you not focus on academics or was it just because athletics got more intense or? It was both, man. The college life got to me. I started going to more parties and realizing, man, this is great. Um, started making some poor decisions, you know. Uh, um, didn't, didn't know to the degree that I know now how important those academic advisor roles are. So we had an academic advisor for our athletic team, but she was so overwhelmed. She was the academic advisor for all of our sports. And so it was always like the long waiting line to get to her. So I never, you know, I use that as an excuse, but looking back, I wish I would have went and seen the regular school counselor um, or excuse me, academic advisor, Mm -hmm. because I, what happened was my, my, my degree classes started to get really hard. So I was studying business and I had to take like stats in uh, this like economics class and they were kicking my butt. And I was like, I didn't know what to do. I, and, and I wasn't, it, 
I was finding out more about where that that career could lead me to, and I wasn't in love with it. So I needed to switch my major like freshman year, but I didn't know you could even do that. I thought that was like a big no-no. And so, you know, I just endured it and I just kind of like avoided it, start skipping class, start cheating on tests. You know, next thing you know, you're behind, you can't catch up, you know, you get caught cheating on the test. (laughs) Which happened, by the way, I failed the stats class because, dude, they wanted you to memorize all these formulas. And I'm like, dude, why can't I just have a cheat sheet? So I put uh, all the little formulas on the back of a piece of paper and uh, slipped it underneath my calculator. Okay. Uh, the problem is that I've got a, a mild form of ADHD. So I forgot that I did that. <laughs> and um, he was walking around just kind of seeing who needs help or whatever, not even like being suspicious. And I, my dumb self pulls out this calculator sheet and you can see the papers go. <laughs> no. The whole class got silent. He called me outside and I, I failed statistics. So, oh. <laughs> I, I, you know, one decision after another, man. And that's why it tanked for a couple of semesters. Oh my goodness. It's so funny when you say that I, I took it, I, I cheated on one test in college and I was not like into it, but like it was a chemistry class and it was at eight o'clock and I was, I hated it for a lot of reasons. And I was like, I remember like having cheated on one test cause I didn't do anything and I, I didn't get caught, but I remember feeling so like guilty about it that I would, I just promised myself I would never yeah. do it again. I would like, I'm just going to study now. Cause I felt so bad about it that I was going to get caught. <laughs> that I was like, I can't do this anymore. You know, it was like the, the, uh, what's the, the poem where the, 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 the heart's beating under the floor. Um, I forget, but, uh, it's, yeah. it's it was yeah, too yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, so, so, academics, obviously, I mean, college life's a lot, right? And, and you're playing big time, you know, college football, you know, you're trying to get, you know, you're trying to be social, enjoy yourself. So like, where does that go? Right. I know you had a significant injury at one point. Can you tell me about, about that? Yeah. So I traveled my freshman year, you know, got to play, burn my red shirt against block. Um, on my first play, I blocked the kick right at halftime. Uh, the University of Georgia, which is now where I live down in Metro Atlanta, um, played against Matthew Stafford, Nosho Moreno, those guys. So mm-hmm. started strong. You know, they put me on like uh, third down pass rush packages. So I'm happy. I'm traveling. I feel like I'm the man. I get to sit in first class because even though I wasn't an upperclassman, I was 6'5", but I was one of the bigger guys on the team. So I get the leg room. Like everything's going great. You know, school's going well. And I am trying to impress these upperclassmen. I did have some minor back problems in, in high school. I had deadlifted a little too much and kind of had some herniation. Um, so I came in with this mandate like, hey, you know, don't squat. But again, this mentality of like, I'm going to prove myself to people. I was not about to not squat while everyone else is squatting. So I was doing it. No, there was really no problem. And so one day I tried to impress the upperclassmen with how much I could lift. And I, I can't remember what the weight was, but I'm like, I'm, I'm doing it. And I, and it got stuck and something did not feel right. And I, they racked the bar and I walked away like that, that, that didn't feel good. But I didn't know the difference between being hurt and being injured. Mm-hmm. Okay. So hurt is something you can play through and injury is something that you need to heal from. And I thought I was hurt, but I was injured. And so I was sitting there using painkillers and just pushing my way through. I went about um, all the way. So that was probably about mid-season. I went 
probably, yeah, definitely past the season was over until I finally got it looked at. And it wasn't until off-season workouts where I looked at my left leg and it had been hurt and not been taking pills on stuff. And my left leg, literally, I slapped it and it was like complete jello. And I was like, something's wrong. And so I went and got an MRI and I had to have emergency surgery before my left leg went paralyzed because I had so much nerve damage that I wasn't going to be able to walk again. Mm-hmm. So that should have been it for me. And so that was kind of what my my start was like. Let me pause there and see if you had any questions. No, no, I, <laughs> I you know, having having uh, read read Daryl's book, um, he had kind of talks about this, and I can relate because I had um, I had neck surgery where I had the same thing where my arm still to this day is atrophied. So like when I heard that, I was like, oh my goodness. Like I can't imagine what that's like when you're trying to walk on it versus just having it be an arm. (laughs) And the thing about it is I was so talented. Nobody knew anything was wrong, you know? So they're like, yeah, he's just hurt because I'm still leading workouts. I'm still excelling. I'm still making plays. So they're not Mm -hmm. like nothing's extremely wrong with them. And so I'm like, well, no, something's wrong. And so uh, I have the surgery. And um, for me, that was it. The coaches, there was a guy named Josh Allison that had this same exact surgery that I had, double laminectomy, the year before. He had tried to come back and didn't last like two days. And he was a tough guy. Like he was a, he was like one of the strongest in the weight room and stuff like that. So they were like, there's, there's no way this guy's coming back. So they were like, listen, man, uh, we value your leadership. We want you to come around the team whenever. Uh, you got a golden ticket, my, my man. You can focus on education. And you can come around football whenever you want. We'll still honor our, you know, four years of your scholarship for you. But they didn't understand sports was not what I did. It was who I was. Mm-hmm. The, the, this, 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 this wasn't me. This was me giving up on everything I had worked my entire life to achieve. You know, this was me losing my identity. This was me losing, you know, me, my ability to be a superhero and get my family out of poverty. So I wasn't going to let it go like that. So I'm like, heck no. And I begged them to let me come back and play. They said no, like, I don't know how many times, six, eight times. And I just kept begging them, begging them, begging them, coming back. I literally, the day after my surgery, Michael, um, I was supposed to be in a wheelchair for like a couple of days. And I literally got out of the wheelchair to walk into the meeting room to tell them, like, I'm coming back. I'm getting emotional just thinking about it because I was like, I'm coming back, man. Like, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. And finally, um, you know, this was what happened. And again, they are not liable for this. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get Central Michigan sued. I literally, this is what they said. All right. Okay. You you can do it. All right. Put on your pads. Um, Let's go to practice. It put me in inside drill against Jake Olsen and Eric Fisher. <laughs> so, Jake, you know, um, a lot of people know Eric Fisher because he's number one draft pick. But to this day, anyone who played that team, you can tell you, Jake Olsen probably was better. Like, mm. I could beat Eric Fisher sometimes, but can, it was very hard to beat Jake. Jake was a monster. He had two knee injuries, ended up playing in um, the CFL for a mm-hmm. couple of years, but, but he'll never, you know, he's the greatest thing that could have been, right? And so... They put me an inside drill, which is um, a running drill with a with just the linemen and the running backs, and they get to run right through the middle. So it's just all strength. And I haven't even had the time to properly heal yet. So they thought they were just they were just gonna toss me like a rag down on the ground and then be like, okay, we told you this is not wise, you know, go home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what happened is that didn't happen. <laughs> and I fought and I clawed, and they said, Whoa, this dude can do this, you know, within three months of his surgery. What can he do? You know, uh, you know, so anyways, long story short, I came back. I was starting within six months after my surgery and um, 
and I started for two years and I did so at the cost of my health, my physical, emotional, spiritual health. I started manipulating the healthcare system, getting multiple epidural shots in my back. Um, I was paying for my, my medical bills out of pocket. And have you ever seen the medical bill, Michael? Uh, I've I've seen the medical bills for my surgery, so I know how big they can be. Hey, it's not cheap, man. And so I'm paying for MRI and epidural injections and all this stuff. And my insurance that I had was a HMO insurance, so they only had you only could, they would only pay for doctors that were in the select doctor group. And Mount Pleasant is like in the middle of nowhere, so I had no options in that area. And then the uh, university could not pay for my procedures and uh, because then that would make them liable for my injury. And they had already signed a liability waiver. And so I had to pay for this out of pocket. So I started selling drugs um, to be able to cover the cost of my medical expenses. And for two years, my life was just crazy. I'm literally going from practices to selling drugs to, you know, film sessions to selling drugs to traveling to plan to coming back selling drugs. And like, life is just a blur for like two years and I'm still sort of playing, starting kind of making some plays, but you can tell from all my film that this guy's clearly not, you know, like in, in top physical shape, but he's freaking talented and still chasing down running backs. So I don't know. <laughs> what do we do? Cause me hurt was better than the next guy fully healthy. And so I played for two years and ultimately I started taking so many of these opioid pills that it was thinning my blood to the point where every time I made contact on the field, uh, my nose would bleed. And so you can even go back and watch film. I remember the game, uh, Michigan State. Uh, Who's that quarterback that came out of there? You remember? Uh, this would have been, golly, he, he played He played in the league. Michael Cousins. Michael Cousins. Or Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins. Yeah, so playing against Cousins, come out, get a hit on the quarterback, like first play. You know, everybody's going wild because they're like, oh, it's going to be another upset. Central's going to be uh, MSU again. And uh, literally, it's like I started off stronger than people are like, what happened to the kid that was like already dominating? Well, what happened is my nose started bleeding and I was playing the rest of the game with nose plugs in my nose, which, you know, tried playing football without being able to breathe. And so I did that. And uh, coaches was like, man, we don't know what you're doing, bro, but something ain't right. And so they kicked me off the team and that, that got me frustrated. That pissed me off. And that kind of led me down this whole path of facing my, my fears. And, and that's what I was going to ask you, right? Like, so you you kind of described that last couple of years as sort of a tailspin, right? Of all the things that were sort of like a blur. Like, what were the people around you saying to you? Well, again, you know, this is this is like one of my coin phrases, man. Um, I was externally successful, but internally failing. Uh, when you're extremely gifted it's very easy for you to mask internal pain with external success. So I tricked everybody into thinking nothing was wrong because I didn't want to show that weakness. Mm -hmm. So well, I'm having these secret battles, you know, manipulating the healthcare system, getting epidural shots in my bag, having my roommates have to carry me in the hospital, can't even make it through the night trying to sleep. And then I'm showing up to practice and I'm like, what's up guys? What's up, man? Let's go. Who ready today? Hey, you ain't ready. Hey, coach, come get him. Come get him. He ain't ready. So they're like, oh, this is cool. And then I'll go home and then I'll be crying myself to sleep. And, and then, you know, feeling like I want to quit, feeling like I'm not going to make it, not knowing what I'm going to do with my life after sports. I come to practice. Hey, yo, what's up? Hey, coach, man. Hey, look, look, let me tell you something, man. Don't put this guy against me, man, because I'm telling you. I'm telling you, it's over. It's over for you. I'm telling you. You see how we did y'all last time. Yeah. And so they're, they're, not, they're not catching that anything's wrong. Um, 
so I hid a lot of these battles mm -hmm. from um, the organization because I knew when they found out they were going to stop me and shut me down. I didn't want that to happen. Sure. And that's a reality that happens um, as you know, from the, 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 the conversation about concussions, when you got to sit out. I mean, when I played, it was like uh, a week. Now it's, I don't know. You got to sit out like three weeks or something crazy. I don't know what the rules are, but nobody wants to come forward and say they have this injury because we all want to play. Right. Or we don't want to lose our spot. Right. Because if you it's so cutthroat, man. So if I if I OK, coach, I need to take a break. My back's not feeling well. OK, man, put the next guy in. He goes, has a great game. Hey, Stinson, you're not getting in, <laughs> you know, and that's a that's a true pressure that I was I was dealing with. Absolutely. Listen, I, I played football in high school and that was as far as I went. And I remember I hurt my back one time in high school so bad that I could barely stand up straight. And you know what I did? Exactly what you said. I stood up straight. I practiced all week with this terrible pain because I didn't want to get, my, I didn't want to lose my spot, and I and, and I wasn't going anywhere. So like, it's just the way I think a lot of athletes are raised because it is their identity for like, hey, I want to be a tough guy. I don't want my teammates to think I'm weak. I don't want my coaches to think I'm weak, and I don't want to be off the field. And meanwhile, you're going through a lot of stuff that you know is just kind of tearing you out from the inside. Yeah, absolutely, man. And you know, I'm here and pull me back in. If this is a tangent, but there's a. I remember seeing this clip. And this was like two or three years ago, of this UFC fighter, and and it kind of went viral because uh, he was sitting there. Uh, he was he was a black guy, and uh, he was getting ready. Like he he had got knocked out and got back up, and you know you know how UFC is. It's it's brutal. And the clip that went viral was him like looking. He was just looking so determined. Like he's like. Get ready to knock this guy out. And he literally mouthed the words like, I'm ready to die. Like, I'm ready to die. Like, like I will die in this ring before I tap out. And like everybody was like, Oh my God, that's what that's the true competitor spirit. That's the nature. And I watched that and I was like, that's the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> I'm like, 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 I understand a competitor's edge. Don't get me wrong, don't be soft, but you ready to die? And then, you know, I have a friend who was a UFC fighter, a couple of them, but one reached out to me because he saw my comment on the post because I was like, I don't think this is healthy, guys. And he's like, no, nah, man, this is the mentality you got to have when you fight UFC. I'm like, no, it's not. No, it's not. Who told you that this is? <laughs> and yeah. so I don't know, man. It's my personal opinion that I think we take that too far. I think we do. And that's why my model now is I'm my, 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 my slogan now literally is when at all cost, accept the cost of your mental health. Yeah. Like we're not, oh, our lives is going to live beyond this moment. So all of this glory stories, you know, I get it. Like Jordan played with the flu, right? Everybody wants to have those moments, but it's like, yeah, but with Jordan ready to die, like the flu is not, the flu is not the death. Right. It's a whole right. different thing, y'all. You took this too far. But, but so, I don't know what I, you think about that. I, I think, well, listen, I, I'm thinking about what, you wrote in your book that was sort of a very clear message is once you were able to accept the fact that your career was over, then you can move forward. And it's, it's very similar to what you described, right? As athletes, we're taught never to surrender, right? We're not going to surrender. We're not going to quit. And we're going to go until we can't go anymore. But in your case, right, you decided like, I don't want this anymore. Like I need to move on. And that's when your life got better because you were willing to throw your hands up and say, like, I can't do this anymore. It makes life so much easier, right? So can you, can you just talk about that transition from, like, 
that time when you, when you, the, the experience you had when you were in the hospital, like kind of like reevaluating your life to the point you started to move forward and make those changes to get to where you are today? Yeah. So, um, let me make one distinction because I, I think this is, I feel like sure. I need to say this. Absolutely. Um, and I, and I kind of got off on this tangent and I want to say this for the audience because I talked about this concept of masking my internal brokenness with external success. And here's what I learned is that vulnerability is a Batman signal for love. And we all have this deep desire to be fully loved, but in order for us to be fully loved, we have to be fully known. And so what I tell people is deeply inside, I wanted to cry out to the people that were around me and I would do these micro hints at the fact that I was struggling. And I would say something like, Oh, I'm just going through a tough time, you know, and nobody will really respond because, you know, that didn't alarm them. I wasn't being vulnerable enough. But the way that somebody responds to I'm having a tough time or I'm feeling down is way different than somebody responding when I when I say I'm having thoughts about harming myself. So the more vulnerable I am, the stronger signal it sends to people that I need love in my life. And so I just wanted to make that that point for people because I want people to know that this, like, if you feel rejected, if you feel alone, ask yourself the question, how vulnerable are you being? Because the strength of your vulnerability will determine and attract the strength of love that you so desperately need. Okay. So let's fast forward. And here we are. Um, it's, it is, uh, I got kicked off the team. I'm pissed off. And now I'm facing this insecurity that no one really likes me beyond my ability to run fast and jump high. All these coaches who are asking, how's life, Stinson? How's your family? They only doing this because they they see dollar signs on the back of my jersey, right? All of my friends on campus who are like, oh, that's Daryl Stinson. Oh, the old guy, he's a football player. Now I can't say that I'm a football player. So no one really likes me. So I'm dealing with this depression and I start like, you know, using drugs to deal with that rather than you know, seeing a counselor or something like that. And I had one confiding grace. I was confiding in my girlfriend. She's my high school sweetheart. I was dating her for four and a half years. We did all the cute stuff that you're supposed to do. Like, you know, wrote my last name next to her first name in cursive and picked out our kid's name and all this stuff, right? Um, One day I'm sitting in my car and um, I'm really contemplating like ending it. And I call her and I'm like, hey, hey, baby, what's going on? And she's like, oh, it's okay, Daryl. You know, everything's going to be okay. You know, and she usually calls me baby. I'm like, what's going on, man? Like, why is she calling me Daryl? And so I'm like, man, something ain't right. So I'm like, call her best friend. Like, yo, where's she at? They're like, oh, you know, um, it's okay, Daryl. She just got a lot of stuff on her mind right now. I'm like, oh, no, I ain't buying that. So I call another person, another person, another person. Come to find out she was at another guy's house who she had just recently got engaged to. And she was planning to leave me and hadn't told me yet. That validated that insecurity that who I was without sports wasn't enough to be liked. And so that was it, man. I started to get real serious and I started to mix my pills with alcohol. Um, I would get, I would drink a whole fifth of alcohol and I would get in a car hoping that a car accident would end it all. And um, I just wanted out of my pain. And to me, the the pain of dying was so uh, much less than the pain of living. And I wanted out. And so you know, uh, one day I sat in this blue dot Stratus and I'm smoking a blunt and drinking a filter alcohol and tears are running down my face. And I wrote my suicide letter saying goodbye to everyone I love. And um, that was the day I was going to end it. And I 
put the letter there and I turned my phone on silent and threw it on the passenger seat. And I gripped the steering wheel and I started driving 75 miles per hour down a 35 mile per hour road. Cause here I am getting ready to drive off the highway onto an intersecting highway. And as I'm in this rage, I see my phone light up out of the corner of my eye. And, uh, it's my mom. And she just had that mother's intuition. She's like, I don't know what's going on. And I have no clue what you're going through, but I just feel like you need to come to me. Let me get you help. And my mother convinced me to drive from Mount Pleasant all the way to Detroit, Michigan, where she was staying. And uh, she admitted me into psychiatric care facility. And uh, man, it was there that my life changed forever. I found my faith there. I did inner healing there. Uh, I found out that my life actually had purpose beyond the sports. I had this dangerous thing called hope. And after all that inner healing and that life-changing experience, I came out of that place determined that I'm going to figure out what my purpose in life is because I don't believe that if I'm still alive today, that my future is going to be less fulfilling than my past. So clearly I'm alive for a reason and I don't have to live my current life as if it's second best to my former life as an athlete. My best days are ahead of me. They are not behind me. And I don't care how much money I got to spend, how many hours I got to pray, how many questions I got to ask. I'm going to figure out what my purpose is. And that's where chapter three of my book covers is this purpose discovery process that I've used to find my highest purpose. Because I believe when you find your highest purpose, I'm so sorry to get in speaker mode, but when you find your highest purpose, you and you operate at that level, you will have the greatest level of fulfillment, the greatest level of impact on the world. And so I found that. And, and I'll be honest with you. I knew that a, a one expression of my purpose was to be a public speaker, but I was insecure. I hated the sound of my voice. I was confident in my athletic ability. And when you're at the top 2% of an industry, which you are when you're a college athlete, when you're at the top 2% of an industry and you have to start from the bottom at another, that is so defeating, right? Because you know what it's like to be in the top. You don't, you don't even remember what it's like to be at the bottom. I don't even know if they, they say started from the bottom now. I hear, you know, I don't even know if I started at the bottom. Even when I was uncoordinated, I still had this high expectation and this belief in me. But here I am as this like speaker, can't put two sentences together, terrible body language, terrible eye contact mumble, can't put two sentences together, don't know what I'm doing. And like, um, I know that I have this call to do it. And I had to work through all of that. And when I tell it, and I talk about this in the book is I say, um, uh, I confuse confidence with competence. So I thought that I was super scared to speak in public. I thought that I had a confidence issue. What I realized that after I grew, I developed, I did some Toastmasters, I stumbled, I failed at practice. I realized that it wasn't a confidence issue. It was a competence issue. I did not know how to put a story together. I did not know how to use my voice. I did not know how to have great body language. I did not know how to put together a structured talk. And when I learned that, the confidence came and there it was. And so I tell people, if you're interested in something, you have a passion, passion to do something. Don't let what you don't know keep you from what you want. Like do the work, learn, make the mistakes and realize that, hey, you're not really struggling with confidence. You're just figuring this thing out. You are jumping and then growing your wings on the way down. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what you would call having a growth mindset, right? In the sports psychology terminology, right? And that's what I tell athletes, right? They and 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 anybody, right? Like sometimes people expect that they're supposed to do something and they use the word should, which I hate. And I tell them it's poison, 
right? Because why should you, right? What you just described is acknowledging that you wanted to get better at something that you had never really done before. So how could you expect to be good at it unless you practice and make an intentional effort to get better, which is exactly what you did? Yeah, yeah. And I, and, and, and I think there is something to be said in defense of us <laughs> that, man, when you put in that work, man, it's almost like this. You got this podcast. You grow, you're, you're doing all this hard work. You're interviewing and networking and asking great questions and studying your guests and following up and post-producing the content. You're doing all of this and you're yes. building, you're building, <laughs> yes, you're building, you're building. And then just imagine, just imagine, I don't, this is not going to happen, but just imagine that the universe gods were like, hmm, delete <laughs> on everything. All your podcast episodes gone. Matter of fact, you know what? Not just your podcast episodes, but watch this. You now have lost the ability to speak. So you can't even do the very thing that you want to do anymore. That's frustrating. It's tough. So it wasn't like I could just dust myself off and go play sports again. I had to figure out something new and I had already put in the work. So life tells you that if you work hard at and you give it your all, that you can have anything you want in life. And that's pretty much true until the thing that you want gets taken away from you. That's right. And that, shh, frustrating. Right. And acceptance is a process, right? It and is. Right? Like you, you acknowledge is. that something's not right. You hit your bottom, whatever that bottom looks like for you or yeah. me. You ex but then you're like, okay, I know it's there. But like, how do I truly accept that this is something that needs to change? It's not easy. Right. Yeah. And, and I have to say, like, it's really important for me to say this is like, you know, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. Right. Like you've written your book. I'm sure you've told the story a thousand times and you're still breaking up because it means so much to you. And like, I'm proud of you to be able to share it, because like I think what a lot of young people need to know, and I would say, dare to say, particularly young men, you know, that it's OK to be vulnerable. It's okay mm -hmm. to struggle. It's okay to know that not everything's going to go your way and to ask for help. And that's one of the things that I talk to athletes about is you have to learn how to ask for help. It's a skill because we're not taught to do that. You have to get comfortable with that and you have to practice it just like public speaking or anything mm -hmm. else. You've got to challenge yourself to say, I need help. And it's okay to look vulnerable and be vulnerable yeah. because otherwise you're not going to get better it's going to, you're going to get worse. You're going to internalize it and you're going to go backwards. Yeah. And I think that's a really hard thing for, for athletes to understand because we're used to doing so much on our own. Yeah. We internalize so much and identify so much with what we do versus who we are as a person, what we believe. Yeah, absolutely. So, so tell me about that. Cause I think it's really important. And it comes through in the book, the idea that, right. Your purpose is, is, is so you, you take that purpose and you can apply it in so many places, right? And establishing what your values are. How did you go through the process of establishing your values and figuring out what that purpose was? Because it didn't, it didn't happen overnight. Yeah, yeah, not at all. It took about three to five years, to be honest with you. And it's so one of the things that I, my editors told me to do with my book is they said, man, we need to clean it up a, a little bit so it's a little more chronological. Like... I start to get confused of like, hey, where are you in college or is this after college? And I told them like, uh, I made the executive decision not to change it mm -hmm. because 
that's how it was. One day I was two years past college and I'm, I'm excited. I'm getting some speaking opportunities. I'm, I'm, I'm working at CMU as a marketing professional and having some success. And I watch one football game and, I f- and I'm depressed again and feeling like I just want to go play. And so that was the re- roller coaster of and the battle and the wrestling of actually accepting that it was over and trying to find and, and I want to say find it, but fall in love with that life after sports. Um, and that one was hard. And so uh, that was the process. So I think it was just a commitment, an unwavering commitment that I'm going to figure this thing out, no matter how much I got to pray, no matter how much I got to pay <laughs> um, to, to figure it out. And, and being okay with, there was a real, uh, probably about six month period where I was, I mean, God, man, I probably, I probably didn't, I probably like was like concerning our library staff because I just lived in the library. I was there every single day reading every book I could find. And I was so frustrated, man, because I'm trying to find my purpose. And everybody kept saying, well, what are you passionate about? I'm like, sports. <laughs> I can't do that anymore. So stop asking me that. And then I realized something. I get it. Purpose is not what I do. It's why I do it. And that was a, a pivotal, a pivot moment for me, an epiphany. And I was like, okay, so why, why did I do play sports? Why, why did I care about that? Mm-hmm. Why am I interested in these things that I'm interested? Is there, is there something that's common between my love for sports and my love for rap music? Hmm. Okay. What is that commonality? Okay. Well, when, when I rap, people feel free. They're not focused on their problems. Okay. Okay. When I play sports, like I'm the center of attention, families come together, memories are made. Okay. So actually, what if my purpose is to help people create meaningful memories? Like what if my purpose is to foster environments of love? Like what if my purpose is less of what I do and more of why I do it. And that was huge, man. And when I started to go that way, I just kind of start, it's like peeling back the layers of an onion. You know, I just kept asking myself, well, why, well, why, well, why, well, why, well, why? And, you know, it's all in the book and there's certain, certain questions that I would ask, you know, what would you do with your life if you knew you couldn't fail? And, and, and that's where people usually stop is what would you do? What would you do? But that's just the top layer. Then you got to ask yourself, well, why is that what I would do? Another thing I tell people to do is envision the perfect world. Like I tell people, close your eyes and I want you to describe to me the perfect world that you envision. And you think everybody's answer would be the same, right? You think everybody would be like, well, I want world peace and no hunger and a perfect environment, like all this stuff. The truth of the matter is is that we don't say the same things. What I find is when people do that, they start to emphasize certain things because, right, watch this, we see the world through the lens of our purpose. And so they'll start to use words like peace or love or wholeness or environment or human connection. And I'm like, ah, we're getting closer to purpose. Here we go. This is that motivate. You see? And when they do that, it's like, man, and it's crazy. And I've done this with, uh, um, you know, high school athletes. And I've done this with Olympic athletes who are extremely decorated. And the process is the same. And they always have the same thing. They're like, wow, I didn't realize that beneath all of my drivenness, was this true desire to do blank. And that actually is my purpose. And this is why this is freeing. Because while my career will change, my purpose is still intact. 
Well, listen, I mean, I I relate to I relate to you so much because this is my second life, my second career. And when I was a kid growing up, the only thing I ever wanted to do was be in sports. And I always wanted a job in sports, but I didn't know how to do it. But it wasn't until I found my purpose, which was to help other people, right? Be their best. It's now a vehicle for me to do that. It's not the reason why I do it. I want to help people. Sports Mm -hmm. is great, but I can Mm -hmm. do it so many other ways, right? I could have a podcast. I could go help it. Anybody, right? If, yeah, yeah, yeah. if if I get up every day to help somebody do something else, that's yeah. all that matters. This yeah, just yeah. happens to be the way I do it. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree with them more. I think it's super important. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you a couple of other things. I know this is always a hot topic. And I have a course around this. But a couple of things that I tell people to do um, is we talk, you talked about it was core values. Find a list of core values that you live by because that is something that's not attached to an activity. So a core value of mine is, is family. A core value of mine is love. A core value of mine is generosity. These are things that come from within and aren't dependent upon a job, a contract, a sale, okay? Uh, the other thing that um, is not in the book, but I've learned since is I have people introduce themselves without telling me what it is they do. And that's challenging for people because when people say, hey, oh, hey, my name is Daryl, you know, and I'm a speaker coach. And I did, <laughs> so we start going into what I do. Right. But how about my name is Daryl and I enjoy long walks on the beach? How about we answer according to our being and not our doing? I love it. Yeah. It comes up all the time, right? Because people, yeah. they, re- they want to read you their resume because it's easier to kind of relate to and identify like, oh, this is what this guy does or this is how much money he makes or this is how yeah. successful he is. But they don't want to show themselves as a person. Like, w- yeah. what do I do as a person? How am I show up every day? And, and it has nothing to do with how much money I make or, or yeah. you know, what I drive or where I live. So I, I, I love that. Um, so if you had to give advice to uh, an athlete, right? Just let, let's stick with this kind of group, right? This kind of high school to college or college athletes, like in terms of them finding their purpose or sort of managing their identity, looking back on what you know now, like what would be the advice you would give to them in that same spot you were in, you know, 10 years ago? Dream big, dream beyond. Okay. Dream big. If you're a current athlete right now, I want you, I, I mean, dream as big as you can. I mean, as big as big gets. I mean, you're a Hall of Fame. You are the next Michael Phelps. You are the next Danica Patrick. Like, you are the next Serena Williams. Like, you are the next Tiger Woods. Like, you are the next best thing since sliced bread got sliced. Like, <laughs> I want you to dream big. You're famous. You're rich. House. And I want you to work. Work at it. Give it everything you got. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to dream beyond. What happens after you're a Hall of Famer, after you're Danica Patrick? What then? What are you going to do? That way, if it happens sooner than what you're ready for, you've already done the hard part of thinking through it. The problem is that we keep telling athletes to not put all their eggs in one basket. That goes completely against the the narrative of a high achiever and a competitor, which is taught to not show weakness and to never prepare to fail. 
We say that if you believe that you're the best athlete, you will be. It's a mentality. So to simultaneously in another sentence tell you to prepare for plan B, you're telling an athlete to prepare to fail instead of prepare to succeed. When you tell them to dream big and dream beyond, it is a success narrative, not a failure one. That little shift from a psychological perspective helps them to embrace the thinking process that's necessary for them to figure out what they're going to do with their life beyond sports. It is a hack to the athlete's identity. And that's what I would say to our athletes. I absolutely love that. I think that's so great because they're preparing for the future beyond sports, but they're not shortchanging their ability to achieve their goals. It's just a part. It's just part and parcel of what they're going to be for the rest of their life. Exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. Well, I think that's, that's probably a good place to end because I think I could talk to you for <laughs> hours on end. I love this conversation, man. It's, I just, I'm so thankful that you agreed to come on and join me. Uh, before we go, why don't you tell everybody where they could, uh, where they could find you? Yeah, you can reach out to me on my website, DarylStenson.com. I'm sure it'll be in the show notes. Um, and then SecondChanceAthletes.com is the uh, organization that they want to connect with some other athletes or come on the show or something like that. So, yeah. That's awesome, man. Check out Daryl's stuff, man. Check out his book. Um, I don't know if you're going to see this on video, but here it is. I'll, I'll hold it up for the camera. Uh, who am I after sports? Daryl Stinson, man. Thank you so much. Uh, I loved our conversation. Best of luck to you going forward. And Let's stay in touch, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Daryl. Mike Huber is the founder and owner of Follow the Ball Coaching, located in Fairhaven, New Jersey. He is a mental performance coach and business advisor dedicated to serving athletes just like you reach their full potential on and off the court. The Freshman Foundation is all about helping you get to the next level. For more information, follow along on Instagram at the freshman foundation please subscribe give us a like on itunes spotify leave a review tell a friend most importantly come back in two weeks ready to get better